Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 268 of the Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Hatchpath, an interview with Jordan Dunnan. My name is Nicole Bell. My name is Richard Johannesson. So today we had a fabulous interview with Jordan. He talks about his experience with Lyme disease, how he was ill as a kid chronically, but then really had an event when he had a traumatic head injury, which triggered his Lyme disease and how he recovered and how he is now building a business called Hatchpath so that other people can find connections with people who can help them through their Lyme journey. So I look forward to sharing the story with you. And without further ado, here's Jordan Dunnan. Hello, Jordan Dunham, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful to be here today. We're really grateful to have you here today, too, but we're also grateful to have the brilliant Nicole Bell with us today. So, Nicole, please say hi to the folks. Hey, it's good to be here. So, as you all probably know, Nicole is the brilliant author of What Lurks in the Woods, and we asked her to take some time to uh, join us as a special co-host for this special episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast where we're interviewing Jordan. And Jordan, please um, share with folks where you currently live. I currently live in Florida, but I am from Toronto, Toronto, Canada, Toronto, Ontario, and I'm enjoying the sunshine for now, though. Wow. So you've uh, you've come to the U.S.? I have, yes. So do the folks in uh, Florida um, often recognize that you folks from Canada say the word aboot? Every day. So Jordan, so talk to us about Canada and what it was like to grow up uh, as a young Canadian. Um, It it was was honestly awesome um, to have a seasonal um, winter, summer, fall, spring was phenomenal. I grew up playing a lot of hockey and then water sports in the summer. So like my schedule would be, you know, all winter playing hockey. I always played, you know, elite level minor hockey. And then I went and played junior A in in grades uh, 10 and 11. Uh, sorry, 11 and 12. And then um, I went to university at Queens University. But um, in the summers, I spent a lot of the time on the water. So I enjoyed wakeboarding, um, you know, water tubing, just hanging out on the water and, and all that stuff. But it was up in, in Muskoka. And in Muskoka, we have really dense forests and um, lots of bugs. And in my story, I don't really know how I contracted Lyme disease. But well, hold, hold on, hold on. We're gonna get there in a second. I promise sure, you, sure. you don't need to run ahead of us. We promise you we're going to get you through that portion of your journey. But so um, I'm kind of shocked that, you know, that a young man from Canada played hockey. It was, um, you know, I, I didn't realize that, that was something that you folks did up there. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's the odd one out. Um, I played a little bit, but yeah, a lot of, well, you know, every single one of my friends played hockey growing up. Um, so you, I think it's played, just part of the culture. So you, you played, you played elite level hockey though, right? You were, you were an A-level hockey player? Yeah. So like I started as a goaltender, I was a goalie until I was about 12 years old, 13 years old. And then I made the switch to defenseman and then center. And then we have what's uh, called the OHL, which is the Ontario hockey league, which is typically where most of the players from the NHL get drafted out of. And um, during our draft year um, or two years before our draft year, I decided I don't want to be a goalie anymore. I want to be a player. Decided playing to go play out. And then I played a couple of years of junior A before I went to university, um, when I decided to, to stop playing. Okay, so let's let's put your hockey experience in context, right? Because I think there's two different pieces to that that's gonna that are gonna be relevant to your story. So let's first talk about when you were when you were training at elite level hockey. Um, what was your fitness level? I mean, how much time and energy do you put into your into into fitness, and how fit were you at that time? Okay, so like like when I was a even when I was a kid, when I was 13 or so, 
Um, I probably trained six or seven days a week off ice and then another, you know, five days a week on ice. So, you know, that training includes like cardio, weight training, um, you know, endurance, you, you name it. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily with the team, but um, when I was making this switch from goalie to player, I had a very, you know, involved dad. My dad was pretty awesome. He had me, you know, with all these trainers throughout the summer, throughout the year. I actually had my own personal skating coach. Um, um, my dad had built a rink on our property. I was very lucky. And um, we, we did it very, very intense. So it was, it was very intense training. But one thing I lacked was my nutrition. Like it wasn't top of mind for me. It wasn't something that we did in our family. It wasn't something that was really talked about. It was just like push yourself to limit, recover, eat whatever you want, and then get back and push yourself to limit. And that was kind of the mindset that I took into line, which, you know, we're probably going to get there, but that was the opposite mindset that you need in line. Okay. So let's, let's, let me talk about one more, one more issue with you, um, with your hockey, and then we'll sort of pull these two pieces yeah. together. Um, talk to us about the, um, the training that you received as a hockey player. Again, you're, 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 you're training at the most, at the highest level of Canadian hockey. And we know that the, the top hockey players in the world come from Canada. So you're, you're, you're the elite of the elite, right? Talk to us about what type of safety training you received when you were working at that level, both from your dad, uh, who seemed to be, seemed to be very much invested in your, in your career uh, as a hockey player and from the coaches that you were working with. And what do you mean by safety? Like, well, I mean, were you, were you given any tools to keep yourself safe and, and prevent yourself from getting injured when playing hockey? Oh, totally. Like to, to build your, your strength and your, um, your capacity to, you know, take a hit, how to get hit, how to deliver a hit. Um, you know, we even did like a lot of fight training. Um, also, I, I did MMA growing up my whole life since I was like 11. I fought like barehanded and, you know, it was, you know, I don't know if it's safety training, but it was about how to take a hit. And that's about it. But in terms of actual physical safety, like we were like cages and neck guards and mouth guards and stuff. All right. So, there, so, there, so, there, so you had this very diverse set of tools that were offered to you to keep yourself safe, right? You had yeah. masks to protect your face and helmets to protect your head and shoulder pads to protect your shoulders and shin guards to protect your shins. You were, you were, you were trained on how to give a hit, how to take a hit. You were also, you know, we know you Canadian guys like to fight as well. You're also trained on how to um, protect yourself in the event that somebody decided they were going to drop the gloves, right? So you were yeah. receiving a great deal of training so that regardless of what you were presented with on the ice, you would be able to stay safe and healthy, correct? Correct. Okay. So now let's talk about, let's talk about your Lyme disease journey for a minute. We're going to now get a peek into your Lyme disease journey. You're now a guy who's training all the time. You're outdoors all the time. You have a forest that's in close proximity to your house. Did you receive any training or education that would allow you to protect yourself from coming in, coming in contact with vectors that could cause you to suffer from Lyme disease or from some, some other type of vector disease? No. You knew nothing about the bugs that could cause you to get sick, correct? No, I think at one time there was like mosquitoes that carried like malaria or something, you know, West Nile, I think it was. So I knew that there was bugs that carried disease. I just didn't care. You know, you're young and I didn't, didn't think about it. But wait a minute, Jordan, you're a kid, right? Your, your yeah. parents were the people who were caring for you, right? And your dad was very much invested in your career. Yeah. And you had a mask to protect your face and a helmet to protect your head and shoulder pads to protect your body and MMA training to protect yourself in case uh, somebody drops the gloves. 
but he lets you go out into the backyard without having any bug spray on, without giving you any information about how you could ultimately get sick as a result of coming in contact with ticks or other types of bugs? Yeah, I think it's just the, the culture. I bet you, you know, 99% of the people I know don't know anything about it still. So now let's talk about um, let's talk about your health journey, Jordan. Um, sure. It's, it's uh, my understanding that you're always kind of a sickly kid. So talk to us about um, you know yeah. the kinds of things that you dealt with during the course of your childhood when you were engaging in this intense level of training. Sure. Like let's just go one step deeper into like the mindset of hockey. You know, the mindset of hockey is to never show your hurts. So, like if you break your leg on the ice, you gotta you know get a skate blade somewhere and you're bleeding. You get up and you go to the bench and you get off. So when I was a kid, I, I dealt with, you know, chronic bronchitis since I, since I could remember. And um, what that meant is that every single winter season or we going into flu season that I would be going on antibiotics. I would be, you know, you know, I'd be struggling with a, a nasal congestion and, and all of this like inflammation and, and my body and, and stuff. So for 10 years of my life, I was on antibiotics every single year. And I am like, for people who know me now, I don't take I don't take, I don't put anything in my body, but I was for, for the period of my life from when I was growing up and having, when I had the most changes in my life, I was on antibiotics twice a year, every year. But of course you didn't do anything to rest or to recover because you were from the suck it up hockey culture in Canada, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, within that, you know, chronic bronchitis stage, I actually started to have a lot of issues. So um, whether you want to relate it to overuse of antibiotics or, or whatever it may be, would, would just be my assumption. Um, I had to get two shoulder surgeries. I had um, an osteochondroma removed from my, my left femur. An osteochondroma is a bone growth, and it would came out in the shape of a hook. It was about two inches. So by the time I was you know, 13, I've had three major surgeries on my body, um, and I was still playing hockey. Like, I didn't clue into my brain that, hey, maybe I shouldn't be playing such a rough, rough sport. And then when okay, well, let's pause that. Let's pause that for yeah. a second because I, I think we have a lot to unpack right here, Jordan. And and um, you know, one of the things that we've learned from many of the doctors we've interviewed on the Thick Bootcamp podcast, uh, uh, Dr. Vera Scanner, who's one of the line pioneers, uh, actually from Long Island, um, shared with us that during the course of his career as a clinician, if people did not exercise, they would not heal from Lyme disease. But what he also discovered was that those people who over-exercise, who are too rigorous in their exercise, who are, who are doing too much cardio, they don't heal either because it suppresses yeah. their T cells, right? So one of the things that I was thinking about is you were sharing your story uh, where you were training aggressively in this Canadian hockey culture um, and, and participating at the highest level that you were doing nothing but training all morning, all afternoon, yeah. all night, you are training and training and training, right? Yeah, and don't do it. <laughs> like it, sure. yeah, exactly. I don't. I I I think that's why my Lyme journey was postponed or prolonged for so long too. Is that um, you know I think it's an actual addiction. It's an addiction. Maybe, maybe, or maybe the reason your Lyme journey started is because you were engaging in immunosuppressive behaviors, and because you were so extreme in the level of activities that you're engaging in, you were vulnerable to Lyme disease when you came in contact with the pathogens, because sure. you were you were just you were burning the candle physically at too many ends. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, 100% agree. I think I, I talk a little bit about that with everybody that I, I come across is that. Um, not only was I, you know, I was hiding things physically 
or I was doing things physically to hide things mentally, like so much stress and anxiety um, in my life um, that I would just head, head to the gym or head to the rink and just like put my head down and work. But, you know, the reason that I think that I sparked Lyme disease is I dove off of a dock and I hit the bottom of the lake and I broke my neck. And We're going to get there. I promise, <laughs> I, I promise you we're going to get there yeah. um, because we, we can talk about a whole series of immunosuppressive events that yeah. I think are a part of your story. And totally, I, totally. I, I am not unfamiliar with you, but I, I think we have to unpack this story together. Now, let's talk about yeah. let's talk about all of your um, antibiotic use. Yeah, um, so you were it. you were getting sick every year, right? And your immune system needed some assistance. And because you needed assistance, you were taking you were taking antibiotics all the time. And what impact do you think that had on your Lyme disease journey? And do you think it was uh, possible that you were uh, you were being floxed, um, or you your your immune system was being negatively impacted by all of the antibiotics that you were using on a regular basis? Yeah, the short answer is yes. If 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 I had known what I know today, I would have never you know, done that, you know, I think that antibiotics work in acute circumstances and I would never tell somebody what their doctor tells them is wrong, but what my doctors told me was wrong. And I can say that cause it's me, but, um, I went through tremendous issues because of my over antibiotic use, like my microbiome in my body was just completely destroyed. I never let it get back to normal. And then my digestive issues and then digestion means that like, I'm not getting the energy from the foods I use. And I'm also not putting the right foods into my body. So this whole concoction of, you know, just flaring my body. And then I go and I just push my body to limit 110% and, you know, not deal with the consequences. Okay. And, so now let's, yeah. so now we have, we have uh, a young man who's trying to compete at the highest levels and uh, in, in, um, you know, in a league that is designed to build professional hockey players. Uh, we have a young man who is, who is, um, and I'm using your term, probably addicted to fitness as part of that culture. We have a young man who's getting sick all the time and using antibiotics and the antibiotics are, are wrecking havoc on his body. And now let's talk about the mindset and what impact all of this is having on you emotionally. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think that I became, if I want to choose a point in my life where I became depressed or I became um I lost my like scope of vision was um, we talk about, it's called like the OHL drafts, Ontario Hockey League draft. So I'm, I'm going into my, my draft year. I think that I'm a pretty good prospect to go to this league that then pumps out NHL players. And I have to get two shoulder surgeries and it pushes me into like the seventh round of a, of a 14 round draft when I was hoping to go much, much higher. And this is when I'm like 13. So, or 15, sorry, 15. And um, uh, yeah. And then, I'm, I'm at a point where my immune system suppressed. I, they, I actually was on Oxycontin for a long time for shoulder surgery at 15 years old. Um, there's a story of uh, I'm going to school and the Oxycontins get stolen from my bag. And, um, you know, I, I didn't understand what they were. And like looking back now, it's like, how could you give a 15 year old Oxycontin? Um, and, you know, like, you know, I never became addicted to pills. I actually had like, I never wanted ever to take them, but the point being is that they also suppressed my immune system. And then I was going through something really traumatic mentally at my age or what I thought was traumatic. And then I went into, um, you know, the next few years of my life without, without direction, still taking all these um, medications and, and playing a sport that I thought would take me to where I want to go, but then not having a goal for my future. So, you know, that kind of story takes me to, 
you know, the way that I got out of line was that, you know, if, you know, I was one that just said, keep my head down and work. I was taught that, you know, hard work leads to results. But if you don't know what your results are supposed to be, your hard work won't lead you anywhere. So like in terms of my Lyme disease, I had to figure out like what I wanted out of life. Like what hard work was I doing here that would get me to where I wanted to be? And I met my wife, Lauren, and that's when I had like the vision of throwing a ball with my, my future son. And I was like, if I have Lyme disease and I can't throw a ball with my future son, that's not going to work. So my goal became, I need to get healthy enough to throw a ball with my future son. That's a okay. long, we're long way down the line. We're going to get there, Jordan. You keep running ahead in the story. So yeah. let's walk <laughs> back a little bit, Jordan, because now, now you're, um, you're 15, 16 years old. Your, um, your, your, your mindset is bordering on, on depression because this goal that you either set for yourself or had been set for you um, yeah. results in you being sick, immunosuppressed, injured, using pain medication. You, you, now, you now are not able to achieve a goal because, uh, because you get drafted in the seventh round rather than the first round of this 14-round draft. And your mindset is now certainly sad. You're going through the grief cycle and now you're starting to get sicker. So talk to us about how, how, your, how your, um, your journey now takes you to a place where you're jumping off of something perhaps you shouldn't have jumped off of. And sure. uh, we have, um, we have um, a head injury. Yeah, so I think that you know, I, I hit a lot of stuff in exercise. Um, when I got older, I, you know, I had that in other things, um, whether that be like partying or, or whatever. So if we just, you know, take a step back. Like, I don't think that, I think a lot of people go through worse things than me not being drafted in the first round. I don't, I don't want to like, um, make that clear that, you know, I didn't go through something that was maybe traumatic through somebody else's lens, but through my lens, that was my first panic attack. That was my first, um, depressive moment. That, like when nobody understood, I couldn't talk to anybody about that. No, and well, then, listen, John, I, I mean, like, I'm going to give you another perspective. Nicole and I are both parents, and I can tell you, we're yeah. both wincing as we're listening to this story. And it's not any one thing that's causing me to wince. It's sort of the totality of things that are developing in your world and the totality of things that are happening. So sure, any person could say, well, I didn't want to be a hockey player. So if I didn't get drafted in the 50th round, it wouldn't matter to me. Yeah. <laughs> but as we're watching this sort of very structured life that you were either structuring for yourself or having structured for you and watching all these events come together, we're watching the train go down the tracks and is about to run into another train, right? Yeah. It's not any one thing, Jordan. It's a series of things that are making me and Nicole shiver right now. Yeah, okay. So, so yeah, so we're at an understanding. I, I, I completely get that. So let's go to the, let's fast forward a little bit. Um, grades 11 and 12 were, were nothing really special for me. I played for a junior A team in my hometown. Grade 11 was actually a really traumatic year. I had a, a concussion that put me out for, for eight months. It was my first um, head injury that I realized. Um, I cut a, like if for anybody that's familiar with hockey, there's um, the blue line, red line, another blue line. So the rink, if I'm going into the offensive zone, I'm 15, it's a 21 year old league. And I, I cut into the middle of the ice and I was 160 pounds and I was hit by a 230 pound um, man. <laughs> and um, I was, I was concussed. And again, I did the whole old hockey thing. I got up, went to the bench, um, tried to finish the game, went to practice the next few days. And then my concussion set in about seven days later. That was my first concussion. And it was about nine months until, you know, I could, I couldn't go to school for eight months. I was, um, 
I was out. So that put in a huge strain on my immune system, but I didn't have a mindset then where I couldn't heal. And so every day I'd wake up like, oh, I'm in pain, but you know, it's going to go away. People would tell me that like, I remember I, I even went to see Sidney Crosby's doctor because at the time Sidney Crosby was going through a lot of concussion issues. And um, they kept telling me like, this could be serious, like life altering. And I kept on not believing them. And I think that that was a strength that I had that I didn't realize was that I was, I was always believing that I was going to heal. I didn't really care what other people thought. I just thought that the body had an autonomic response to injury that it would heal. Like I was like picturing a lizard regrowing its tail. Like, it's just natural. Like you heal. But then, you know, if we move ahead, um, so grades 11 and 12, grade 11, I had a concussion. Grade 12, I was great. I went back to school. Um, I did really well academically. Actually, my math grades increased tremendously after my concussion for some reason. I'm not sure if that's new neural networks or synapses, but I had a, um, a math tutor the entire time that I was concussed because it's the only thing that, you know, I could do. She came to my house, we did math, but then my math grades went from 70s to 90s to like 100%. It's like, I just understood math, it just clicked. And I got into a pretty good business school. And I went to business school in grade uh, in my first year of university. But um, just before I went to business school, I went to the, my OHL training camp because I wanted to see if I could make the team. And um, I had a little bit of fun. Um, but you know, I did, I, when I was at business school, I'll rip through this a little bit because nothing really happened other than you know, I developed a habit of you know, partying with friends. You know, if, if I think that there's one thing I learned from business school was like, you know, how to problem solve. But the one thing that, um, that I did was party. And, um, you know, I partied from like my first year, second year and third year. And I went away for um, my semester abroad in my third year of university to Australia. And I think that's kind of, you know, where things kind of, you know, got out of hand for me. I was, you know, a little bit too much into that, that scene. And when I came home, um, the second weekend I was home, that's when I was, uh, I was some friends at a party and I dove off of a dock and I hit the bottom of the lake. I split my head open and did really bad damage to my neck and my head. And, um, you know, I was in denial. I, I went to the hospital, they put stitches in my head. They did a CT scan, said nothing was wrong, but, um, you know, I was in extreme pain. I was working for a, um, an investment fund at the time in the summer. So I was crunching numbers all day on the screen. Um, working really weird hours and my headaches just get, got worse and worse. My head felt like it was squeezing in. I was taking like eight Advil a day at this time. I didn't, I still didn't care about my nutrition. Um, I took some time off from work and then I went back to my fourth and final year of school, which I was looking forward to. And I withdraw, I had to withdraw in, in October. So, um, so this was compounding. I, I was in a extreme pain and I felt the same pain that I felt when I didn't get drafted to the OHL like I wanted to. I couldn't finish my degree, which I was on the Dean's list. I, you know, I was, had a pretty decent job in the summers and, you know, I thought that I was going to have a really, really successful career after business school. And I withdrew because of a head trauma and I was made to feel, not made to feel, but everybody made me feel like I was an idiot. Um, I was, you know, I was partying, I dove off the dock, I hit the bottom of the lake, you know, I, I, I always heard there's, you know, it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. You're lucky. And I was sitting at home being lucky, not being able to think, see clearly, or finish my degree. And that's kind of where we can start that. Line. All right. So let's, let's, let's pause there. We don't need to start there. We can pause there, Jordan. And, and, and the first thing I want you to do is please be a little bit more, be kinder to yourself. You were a young kid. <laughs> I am now. Yeah. You were you're, you're <laughs> a young kid. You were doing what young kids do, right? What do young kids do? 
They run around the girls. They drink a little bit more than they should. They jump off of stupid things. I mean, that's what guys do, right? It's, you know, it's, it's boys being boys. You know, we, we do these stupid things, right? And totally. so, so you were doing, you were doing, you were doing the things that young boys do. And in most cases, it's fine. The problem is that your body at the time was harboring a set of microbes and it was managing it and it was managing it and it was managing it. And then you had what Dr. Rawls, who's the author of Unlocking Lyme, talks about an immune disrupting event, right? Exactly. We, we see this on this podcast all the time. We have people who are just managing this disease, right? And, and it's just not, it's not even a disease for them, right? Just, it's part of their microbiome. They're managing all these microbes. And then there's an immune disrupting event. You smash your head on the rock. You uh, split your head open. You suffer a physical injury. Your body and your immune system are now focusing on um, healing from that injury. And now all the microbes take off, right? Your Lyme disease yeah. takes off. And now you're sort of on this dual path. But there's another problem that develops, right? And we see this as a pattern as well. And the other pattern that develops is the people who are working with you in the medical community are focusing on your broken head and your broken yeah. neck and all the other things that are going on there. And when you're not healing because they are trained as medical professionals to look for a single source and who would ignore a broken head they're not looking for the other pieces of this, right? And they're not seeing the possibility of an immune disrupting event. So talk to us about how your journey is developing from there. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'm doing this all from the paradigm that I previously had. I, do, I don't think of myself anymore in that manner at all. You know, I'm always forward thinking, um, you know, I do a lot of mental work on myself, like journaling and meditating. But let me, let me come we're going to talk that. more about that. We're going to talk more yeah, about that. But I want back you to, to go that. back to the mindset. What's happening at that moment? Because yeah, the so, is about to take you take you through your, your, your diagnostic journey. But I, I do want to stay with this because it's an important yeah. part of, of validating other people's experiences. And so I, I, yeah. I don't want you to beat yourself up. Uh, and I don't want you to talk about how you've healed just yet. I want you to focus on where you were at that time because you're not alone. And you're not the only person who has suffered from these immune disrupting events. Sure. Yeah. At that moment, I didn't know what depression was. Um, you know, I, I hadn't really, you know, talked with myself about that. I never talked to a therapist or anything. Um, but withdrawing from university, that was my, my first experience with extreme depression. Um, you know, I had suicidal ideation, like every night I go to sleep and think about a new way that I would, I would do that. And um, I just didn't see a way out. Um, I didn't see getting better. I was, you know, I lost that sense of, you know, my body will heal itself. And I think that's a big piece of it. Um, my mindset completely changed. Whenever I had a, you know, a busted shoulder or knee or, or even my head in my last trauma, I always just like relaxed. And I was like, you know, my body's going to heal this. But at this point, I, I, my, my mentality shifted. I, I gave up. Um, I was, I was stuck, even though I was doing all the therapies that like I had, you know, I'm sure everybody can relate to this. It's like your life is a doctor's appointment. Um, which is unhealthy in itself. I think that we need to focus more on rest than, than heading to the doctor. But every single morning I'd wake up and it'd be like a full day of doctor's visits. And no single doctor said, you know, how are you feeling? Like, and not like physically, just mentally. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with. It's like, I'm, so Jordan, but, I'm physically, but talk, so up, talk I'm mentally. Yeah, go ahead. Talk to us about how many different doctors you saw between the time that you broke your head and the time that you uh, and the time that you finally got your Lyme disease diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, there was the ER doctor when I, I hit my head and then I got a cell phone call that like he felt really bad that we should do a CT scan. So he called me back to the ER and we did a CT scan the next day when I was on the golf course. 
um, playing with staples in my scalp. But then there was my, my next set of doctors, which were all, you know, the people that were just, I would go into them and they'd be like, oh, here, yeah, you have a concussion without even looking at me, just listening to my symptoms. Uh, but then I met a really, really intelligent doctor named Dr. Douglas Cook um, out of Queens, who actually became a really good friend of, of mine and my family's. And he did something called a, a functional MRI or an fMRI. And we discovered certain areas of my brain were damaged. And I actually had a, a lot of damage to my neck too. So like my rectus capus muscle was basically ripped off my skull, which is the model, uh, muscle that controls how you turn left and right. So like everybody thought that I was just being, um, you know, you know, you know, suffering from a concussion, being um, lazy or tired, but there was a lot of things that went into it that we didn't know. And, and, and DJ or Dr. Douglas Cook was one of the first people that pointed that out in an fMRI. Um, after DJ, I met with um, a, a doctor, Mark Lindsay, who is a, a chiropractor that worked on some of the world's top athletes. And, you know, he had a thesis that um, he could readjust my, my spine and, and, you know, and, and make me, you know, feel better and, and speed up my recovery. And I worked with um, Dr. Mark Lindsay for about a year. Um, and, you know, I, I have so much respect for him and what he does in, in his practice. But unfortunately for me, with the damage that it did to my neck, which wasn't uncovered, until about a year after, um, I had something called a like hyperadjustment system uh, syndrome. So my neck had become, from adjusting, from chiropractic, it had become instable. So from C1 all the way into my T-spine, I was instable. But in the middle of, of that, um, I, I dealt with uh, my chronic inflammation in my sinuses. And the way we did that was I had a really, really invasive surgery in, in my upper uh, frontal sinuses where they go in through your nose and they tear out everything um, and they patch you up. And about four weeks after that, I had an artery rupture in my, my sinuses. And it was, it was probably one of the moments where I, you know, I thought I was going to die. I had a few of them. This was probably the most um, abnormal. It was like a faucet was running out of my, uh, out of my nose, out of my eyes, out of my mouth. Um, uh, I actually, there's a, uh, I, I they nicked an artery when they were doing my surgery and it had healed. But upon removing like the big sponge, like tampon type things from my, my sinuses, it had ruptured an, uh, an artery, you know, burst. So I had an emergency surgery for that. Um, and at that point I was, you know, pretty messed up mentally and, you know, going through, and I actually, almost, I think I spent my, my birthday in the hospital and <laughs> we were just, awesome. I was just going through some, some mental stuff. And, you know, I didn't realize at the time the stuff that I was putting my parents through, but it was, you know, a whole family, you know, just getting destroyed. And they didn't know I had Lyme disease at that point. I didn't know I had Lyme disease until a year after my, my brain injury. All right. So, um, so when, when does, and I'm going to let Nicole explore the family dynamic because she's an expert on uh, the impact that family has on Lyme. So let's, let's bookmark that for a minute and move forward. You and I together with, with talking about, talking about the, the, the mental piece, right? So, of course, uh, it sounds to me like you were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, right? You had a number of different physically traumatic events, and you were also injured emotionally. You also had been suffering from a great deal of disappointment and a lot of medical trauma, right? So you had the sort of totality of not just physical trauma, but you had, a, you had a lot of emotional trauma happening at the same time, right? Yeah, exactly. Post-traumatic stress disorder, 100%. Okay. Um, I wasn't dealing with the emotional trauma, which made it build and and, you know, build, build, build. I was just dealing with the physical. I was taking that hockey mindset into my recovery, which is, you know, I don't want to talk about it as a hockey mindset because I'm sure it's not the same now, but um, it's, a, it's an unhealthy mindset to think that 
Well, no, but we can't address our, our emotional. Again, body. Jordan, it's it's not it's not the it's not particular to hockey. It's the suck it up mindset, right? Everybody yeah. has that, right? I mean, we we've we've had too many people on this podcast share with us that during the course of their childhood, both men and women, boys and girls, who are told, you know, not to listen to their emotions, but to suck it up and stop being whiny yeah. and stop complaining. And right, and then what happens is we sort of lose touch with our ability to know how we're feeling because we're constantly encouraged to ignore it, right? So right. yeah, it was happening for you in the whole hockey culture, but it's not unique to hockey. It's it's unfortunately, in many cases, the way we parent, um, it could be tiger momming, it could be a number of different ways of, 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 of describing that, right? But what, what was really happening is you were not in touch with your emotions. You had lost right. touch with your emotions and you weren't listening to your body. And all of this is sort of all coming together and this train wreck finally happens when you, when you jump off the dock and you break your head. But what's happening is all of your doctors are focusing on what happened there. Your immune system is focusing on what happened there and the microbes are taking off and Jordan's getting sicker and he's getting sicker and he's getting sicker and no one can figure out why all these brilliant doctors aren't able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? Yeah, no, to totally. And you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I was getting sicker, but I was, you know, portraying a character of getting better. It was almost, you know, like acting. You could, like, this is all about the subconscious and conscious mentality. Like, consciously, I was saying, yo, I'm, I'm going to get better. I'm doing so many things. Subconsciously, I'm saying, you know, I hate myself. Like, I'm so guilty. I did this to myself. I hate myself. And right. consciously, I'm showing to everybody, like, no, I'm, you know, I'm so strong. I'm doing this. I'm getting better. But then internally, I'm saying the, the exact opposite. But we do, but Jordan, we do have this duality, right? We have a mind that's survival software, and when it gets triggered, and 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 if it gets stuck because we are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, that's what's happening internally, and and the self-talk and and the way and all kinds of things are really negative that are going on in our mind. But cognitively, we're part of the suck-up culture. Part yeah. cognitively, we're going to talk ourselves into better. And you had this really bizarre perspective on healing, where you thought you were a lizard and you're going to regrow your head anyway. And by the way, you did it. Because you got better at math. You were almost as good at math as Nicole is at math at that point, right? So, you know. Yeah, Jordan, yeah, totally. And I think Jordan, that that's so, something that, that ruined me when I became. Well, well but it's, yeah. it, it, it's all making sense. And it's painful to listen to after the fact, because I knew the train was going to hit another train. And we're watching, you know, again, we're all, we're all rubbernecking right now, watching that train run into the other train, right? But yeah. talk to us about your diagnosis. How did you finally get diagnosed with Lyme disease? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a very similar situation to, to Nicole's husband where I did the Western blot test, you know, negative, push it aside. Um, but then I was doing all these other panels for um, antigens in my system. It's called Cyrex. It's, um, there's a bunch of panels that they do, but specifically they, they have an antigen panel. And I saw that like, wow, my body's fighting like absolutely everything. What's going on here? Like I'm, I got like inflammation markers, but specifically like I have all these diseases that I don't. I, or I'm fighting all these diseases that I don't think I have. And I had a really intelligent um, doctor at the time. Um, I was going through to a place called P3 Health in Toronto. He was like, you know, let's get your blood tested by Armin Labs. They're out of Germany. They're a really, really good um, company that tests for Lyme because I've seen these markers before and they're typically my Lyme patients. So I sent my blood out to uh, Germany, to Armin Labs, and they do these really, really good cytokine tests for your blood. Um, you know, I'm sure other people have done them and it came back, you know, yeah, you definitely have, you have active line. You don't just have dorm, like you don't have something that's just sitting in your system. You have something that's producing cytokines, that's active and it's running rampant in your system. So that's, so my, that that's first, the, right. Yeah. That's so that right. first Western that you had done that came back negative, who was the doctor that did that? And what, 
precipitated them to actually do that test in the first place? I don't fully remember. I was, okay. you know, I'm, I remember doing a lot of tests. I don't really remember being like coherent. My parents were great at like running all this stuff for me. Um, but I do remember it being like a big, like weight off of our shoulders that I was negative for Lyme. Um, but you know, that's a, you know, I think that, I don't know. I don't yeah. believe, I think it's really good a cute test. Like, like say you get a, a tick bite or whatever it is, like airborne. I, I also don't know about Lyme being um, fully, you know, tick-borne from my circumstances either. So um, acute testing, I think that, you know, Western blot is the way to go. But if you've, if you're sick, I've never heard of somebody have a positive result and it's just crazy. And how much time was there between that first Western and then your positive result for Armin Labs? How much time? I think it was a full year. I had the Western as soon as I hit my head, I believe. And, you know, we were, cause I was like, I was sick. Like if you see, you probably saw a photo of me on, on Instagram and I was in, in uh, um, Australia and my face was contorting to cardboard and I was just prescribed um, steroids by a doctor and he's like you know don't take these all the time and I was just popping them every day because I didn't want to have um, my face do that anymore so I I never made my health my priority until like it was the last resort yeah and so when you finally get the result from Armin, what was your reaction, right? You've been, you've had chronic head injuries, you're yeah, depressed, I, you're, I mean, how did you react to that? It didn't, I didn't, well, I didn't even know what Lyme disease was. I didn't care. I was just like, okay, I'm struggling with a concussion. I'll deal with that later. Um, I honestly didn't care. And I think that might've been, a, I think that Lyme is more well-known now, but back then I just, I really didn't care. I was like, oh, it's another blood marker. I've had so many throughout my life. It's just another thing that will go away. And it didn't occur to me that it was something serious. But and did your doctor did. understand that, you know, the implications yes. and, the, and the impact on your healing and explain that to you or? Honestly, no, I, I never felt in the medical system that there was somebody that uh, could deal with, like, they discussed the alternative of, of running intravenous antibiotics into me. And I said, I'm not interested. Um, thank you. I'm dealing with a concussion right now. I will come back and revisit this later. And what was really interesting um, about my, my diagnosis um, was that, you know, things just finally made sense. And I didn't realize that at the beginning. I was, you know, I think I was 20 at the time. I really thought that I was an invincible person. I just was coming into like just being depressed about my head and stuff. So when people told me about like my blood and stuff, I'm like, I'm 20, it's going to go away. And that, that was my mindset. And what about, talk to me about your family at this point. Like, how are they reacting? Who's helping? You're pretty young, right? Yeah. How are people supporting you through this? Yeah. My, my dad's always been like kind of the forefront, like my mom uh, as well, but my parents were like full force in, into the situation, um, you know, which is, which is good. Um, but there's also a really stressful component to that. My dad's a really a type successful person. And when, you know, things aren't going the way that they should, it's like, we're not just trying one option. We're trying a thousand. I remember discussions about hyperthermia, B venom therapy, um, antibiotics when I was trying to just do one therapy. And it was, it was an argument that we had that, you know, I'm going to do this one thing. If it doesn't work, then we'll move on to the next. Because I feel like a lot of the people that go to the Lyme community, are like, like I talked to, I used to be a coach for, for Lyme. I don't, um, I don't know if you guys know that, but um, because I used to have so many people reach out and do the same thing. It was like, how did you recover? And I thought that by coaching people through like the mindset of, you know, just let's like take it one step at a time. Um, everybody's different, but like, you can't understand what's working if we're doing eight therapies, but a lot of people well, that came out to me do 
eight to 15 to 30 therapies at the same time. And, um, are hoping but back up a little bit though, because you know, you're, you've got, you're still focused on your concussion, right? You find yeah. out you have Lyme. Like, how did you make that mental transition of, okay, the Lyme is something that's at the forefront that I need to actually treat. Like, how did you make that decision and who helped you get there? Um, I remember like, once I got that Lyme diagnosis, uh, like the year after my concussion, I really started to degrade. Um, I started to get really sick. I lost about 40 or 40, 50 pounds. Um, because if we go back to when I was playing hockey, I was like 200, 195, 200 pounds. And I'm not a tall guy. I'm like five foot nine. And then, um, going to university, I put on like the freshman 15, I was like almost 210 pounds. And then, um, coming out of my concussion, um, I kind of just like went back to like 180 pounds. And then I dropped down to like 140 I just started losing weight and I, I was just really, really ill. And then I realized how serious Lyme disease is. And then my neurological symptoms um, came back. I had a, um, a, a, a corticosteroid injected into my neck to help with my head. And um, they, they determined it was like a chemical cushion. I don't really know what that means, but I had all of these symptoms. And then we realized that people that get corticosteroids, specifically on um, Botox and connection with Lyme, it's, it's, it literally creates, um, you know, it fires up the line. And there's been studies about it. You know, a lot of people that are in my position have headaches from Lyme disease and um, an injection into your, your C4 area of your spine where your, one of your nerves, your trigeminal nerves runs from is, is common. And it's so detrimental to, to people with Lyme. I, I had to go into wearing a neck collar. Um, you know, I was in extreme pain going to bed, waking up all day. And then I realized like, let's, let's try to kick this Lyme thing out of me. So was, you know, you say, we realized, was it, were your doctors helping you through? Were they saying, you know, Hey, maybe this is interrelated or were they no, saying I, yeah. Lyme doesn't exist? Like where were they in that journey? I didn't really have like a specific doctor. I had, you know, doctors that I don't know if they were just trying to like get on the new trend and profit from the Lyme disease epidemic. Mm -hmm. Um, because like, if you, if I thought about it now, if I look back in hindsight, I don't know where these doctors get their knowledge of Lyme from. Um, if they went to, you know, school for becoming a medical doctor and then specialized in whatever they specialized in, where did they get their Lyme disease knowledge? Did they have Lyme disease? Have they treated people with Lyme disease? What is their success rate? And I realized that no doctors want to tell me their success rate or like who they've treated or anything. So I, long story to the, to the answer is that no, no doctor was helping. When I say we, I mean like my parents and I, and I actually, my dad, um, one of his um, colleagues or, or friends or one of our neighbors up the street, actually, um, his daughter had, uh, she thought that she had Bell's palsy and um, she had all of her blood tests done, determined it was chronic Lyme disease. And she went to see this, you know, crazy witchcraft doctor that I now realize that is my savior. So I, I just referring to this as what I thought in my head. And, you know, they treated her with, you know, frequency therapy and like, you know, like a strip mall. And within eight months, uh, she was back to working her 18 hour days in, in Hollywood and she's never looked back since. So I was like, in my head, I was like, I've, I've tried every single thing. It's been about three years now. I'm at my last chance. Why, how much could this hurt? So we flew down to Detroit. I met with the, with Kyle, who um, unfortunately has passed away since. And I said, you know, let's start this. And, you know, without giving her my blood work, um, we ran tests through her frequency machine. And it was identical to my blood work, mm. um, which, you know, sent a chill down my spine. 
And I, I was like, okay, Della, let, let's try this. Let's give this a shot. If this, you know, she says that she'll do this within a year. And she, and she told me her success rate with patients. She's like, um, 100% of the people that devote their time to me get 100% healthy. And, you know, me and looking back on it with hindsight, like that's a trigger for my mind. I was always a person that said, I can get over this. And then I hit my head and I, and I went into my depressive state of, I can't do this anymore. But Kyle was what re-triggered my mind to say, I can do this again. So she told me that hundred percent of the people that commit to her are hundred percent healed. And um, four months in, I was so sick. And I was like, this is working. <laughs> um, well, I have to say, I mean, it's unfortunately, it's a story that I've heard a lot, right? You, you yeah. have a person who's very sick. They're going to tons of doctors. They're not getting any answers. And then it's a neighbor that, yeah. that tells you where to go. For me, it was my brother. You know, my husband was sick. He had seen countless neurologists. We were begging for answers for why he was having dementia. And then all of a sudden it was my brother because my sister-in-law had Lyme and he just yeah. said, Hey, get retested, go figure this out. And that starts you on your path to wellness, which it's unfortunate that that's has to come through these, you know, friends and family and so forth. It's not coming from the medical community, but so yeah. you finally start seeing this doctor, Kyle. Um, yeah. And said, I don't think that she was anything. I don't think that she was a registered anything. Okay. I, very, yeah. She Practitioner. Yep. I don't know she, how she got into this. She cured herself, I believe, and then started helping other people. Okay. And then she just decided that that was her soul's purpose. And she started treating people. You know, I so don't, tell me about your treatment. You're, you know, just sure. like month one. I want to hear just yeah, about that. She, she made me buy this freaking machine. Um, you know, I was like, okay, like what, what am I getting into here? Um, you know, I'm lucky that um, my parents, you know, are supported me through my whole health journey through my whole life, yeah. and um, we're able to afford this freaking machine. But it was um, a true life machine. Um, and she's like, I'll teach you how to use it. And then this, I downloaded this really sketchy software to my computer. I was like, I don't want to get a virus. It seems pretty, pretty out there. And she'd email me this text file. And she's like, this is how you input it into the machine. So I'd go down to Michigan. She'd scan me with a resonance scanner, which was like a little red light bulb. And I'd hold a metal piece. And she'd make a little beep noise on her computer, which I couldn't see. And then she developed this program. Mm -hmm. And she showed me that, you know, I, you know, the, the, the scan was very, very creepy because it was like directly in correlation with my blood work. And I'd never shown her my blood work. I still didn't show her my blood work because I wanted to keep this, you know, as a test. I was very, no, I was pretty negative about it in the beginning, to be honest. And then, so I ran the first month, I took it home. I ran the machine for, for five days straight and I was so sick. So I called up Kyle and I was like, I can't, I don't know, I can't do this. This is making me really sick. And she's like, okay, run it three days on, um, you know, four days off. So I did that. Um, the second month, it's the same thing, rescanned me, um, showed me like new co-infections that had, you know, surfaced and other things that had changed. And okay. we talked through it. And she was like explaining like how I was feeling based on the new co-infections. And we tracked everything. Like we have what like type of co-infections do you were you diagnosed with any officially or like I um like my initial blood work, I had co-infections like Bartonella, Babesia, Chlamydia, like I had like like, I don't know, like insane amount, like my, I can, I can find it and I can share that with you guys after. Yeah. Um, but uh, through this, it was, you know, the same thing. Um, but I was getting sicker until about month three and month okay, three. So don't move just... on. Don't, I'm going to pull a rich and I'm going to say, don't move on to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to month three yet. So, cause I just want to understand your mentality because I remember one of the hardest things for me, once you get off of the traditional medical path was trying to 
just connect yeah. the craziness, right? Like I'm, I'm an engineer, oh. I'm a rule follower. You think you're going to experts and all of a sudden they're going to help you get yeah. better. Now you're downloading some sketchy text file and like, yeah, totally. and, you know, I'm, totally irradiating yourself. And, totally, yeah. and I, I mean, what's going through your mind? Totally. And I wasn't allowed to talk about Kyle because she told me a story about how her business partner had been murdered for, you know, caring people with Lyme disease and, and all of this stuff. And, you know, unfortunately Kyle, passed away from head trauma after she cured me. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm again, a deep conspiracy winding roads. And at the time I was like, I'm so into, you know, Western medicine, like I'm taking pills for every single thing. I don't even know what a pill does, but I'm doing it. And, um, until this day, like nobody like in my family will like, you know, listen to my, like, even though what happened to me through my journey ended up with me not having Lyme disease anytime that, you know, anybody in my family, you know, get sick, it's take pharmaceuticals, do this, do that. Um, you know, um, it's just the mindset didn't change within my family, it changed within me. So having to okay. change my mindset without having any outside support as like a 21 year old at that time or 22 year old was impossible. I met Lauren, who's now my wife at the time, and she really opened up my mind spiritually, emotionally, mentally, um, and just to different circumstances, like to not shut anything out. I had been, you know, we all have our paradigms and it makes us like, that's how we see the world. And I saw the world very, very one way. And, you know, meeting Kyle and like having Lauren to talk to and, and all that sort of thing. Like Lauren met me when I was my sickest and now she's my, my wife. So, you know, she's like a real, <laughs> real one. But um, yeah, I didn't have the support structure that was like, okay, Jordan, go try this, this treatment. And, you know, we'll support. It was always like, Jordan, you're doing this treatment, but you need to still do your, take your drugs every day. Like I was being pushed antidepressants by my doctors. I was being pushed pain medications, um, antibiotics, antiviral, like all this stuff. So and your family I, had been very supportive in the early part of the journey, but then once you made the transition, they were very supportive. Like yeah. I, my parents, like, like, again, it's about paradigm. I don't think it's about their support changing. It's just about paradigm, like their view system, their belief system. And, and they, they are in their, there's, or late fifties at the time. And they, they lived their whole life with the pharmaceuticals and like surgeries and like cutting things out of your body and like getting back to it and that mindset where, you know, things are you know changing and it was, it was a different mindset. So I had to, you know, not listen to that. And, and I went through a lot of mental trauma, like with, you know, having to, you know, have those arguments that like, I'm not like, this is my help. I'm not doing it. And, yeah. um, and all that, like that was traumatic. But I don't think the support wasn't there. I think it was just a paradigm shift. But yeah, so like month two is the same thing. And I remember after month two, my dad's like, you know, we're going to Germany for hypothermia. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not heating up my body to like 200 degrees. I'm not doing that. Like, I, you know, that's, that's crazy. And, you know, for some people that might work. But in my mind, I had something that was working. And I had another doctor that was also making me feel crazy uh, for doing Rife back home because he's like, I won't treat you if you're doing Rife. I'm like, what do you mean you won't treat me if you're doing right? So I lost that doctor. And um, it was just- So when did you start, when did you start feeling better in this in this journey? What was, um, was there a yeah, transition yeah. point? So was it more I, gradual? Yeah, so I didn't notice feeling better. You know, you, I just, start, like in hindsight, I can tell you when I felt better because I can see it. But in, okay. in the moment, for those of the people that are going through it, no, I didn't notice I was getting better. I had Lauren tell me, I had- you know, I went back to school and I didn't realize that I was feeling better. Like I finished my degree online and I'm like, oh, I'm not better. Um, then I went and I became a registered personal trainer and was running personal training classes. And I was like, 
I'm not, and I'm, I'm better. I think I'm better. And then, and I, you know, I, I became like the fittest and healthiest I'd ever been. And I kind of like started to think I might be better. So it was this like slow burn of, of it, but it was really quick getting better. How did your and symptoms it, kind of unravel? Was, did yeah, they, they got, go they in got, series or? Totally. So, um, so let's say like month two is same as month one, like skeptical, you know, running the programs, getting a sketchy text file, running it on my wife and emailing back and forth. Um, so that was like still month two. Um, month three, I got really, really angry. I had people coming at me from all sides. I got angry at Kyle. I was like, this doesn't work. Why are you putting me through this? Like I'm flying down to Michigan once a month to see you and angry at my parents, angry at life. Um, and I got really sick month three. And month three is kind of like, the turning point because I was also treating my neck with um, PRP and stem cell therapy in Florida, which, you know, I, I just didn't add because we're talking about the, the line, but I made that mistake of doing the corticosteroid in, in my neck, I think around month three. And I was like, that's when I was, or maybe it was, maybe it was earlier. I don't know, but I was just really angry um, in month three or month four. And I like, I didn't get any progress. And then um, I came back to Kyle and she's like, uh, basically said that, you know, the people that, believe in this 100% are the people that get 100% recovery. And I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not feeling good mentally. I'm not feeling good physically. Let's do it again. Um, and then I got better. I, I started to, to track things. And one of the mistakes I made was like, I'm really into journaling now. I wasn't at the time, but before bed, I journal about everything that hurt. Yeah. Um, it was like, and for anybody listening, I'm sure a lot of people do that. It's like, keep a pain journal. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I highly recommend from my own experience to destroy that, to throw it out, to never, to never look at that again and to journal about the things that have gotten better in your life and, and to not do comparisons to your past self, because what I did is I built up this like hero of a past self. And I think that we all do. We have like cognitive bias of who we used to be and how we are now. It's like, oh, I used to be able to throw a football, a hundred football fields. And like, I can't even get out of bed now. And it's like, um, every single day that I started to get better, I didn't compare it. I just, you know, I wrote, I started a grateful journal. Um, I started writing about what I was grateful, what I could do. Um, you know, I made a plan to get back into school. I made a plan for, for what I wanted to do. And, you know, that plan's changed, but just having that plan in place was a lot, allowed me to, to do a lot of things and to stop thinking about it. But then it was a battle because I, I was always being told by my doctors to like, no, keep a journal of how you're feeling on a scale of one to 10 throughout all these categories. And I'm like, I don't want to like yeah. that's just you know going to bed with those thoughts in my subconscious and waking up angry and, and looking in the mirror it was hard so um yeah. yeah I started getting better like month four and then I just let go and um, month eight I was like 80 percent better I stopped rifing in month eight I used to say I was 100 percent better month eight but there's no no way I was just I was 80 percent better because now I know where I am now compared to that and then now I started doing the things question with the yeah. rife were you um doing protocols primarily targeted towards lyme were you also doing things that were targeted towards the other co-infections that you had yeah. what did that look like it was everything so she had a, a resonance scanner which i actually eventually bought because i wanted to learn it and um what that did was it like it scanned me through i think there's like four thousand rife programs so mm -hmm. it scanned me through all four thousand and it was like a one to two hour process and what would it, it would do is it would determine what frequencies, you know, were in, you know, absorb or resorb. I don't really remember how the technology works for um, resonance, but yeah. um, it was about, you know, testing whether that frequency would, would be activated by whatever the frequency they're shooting into my body. Okay. And so we built it based off of the entire spectrum. So like I was treating things that um, 
were in my inflammation markers. I'm like, I wasn't just treating Lyme. When I was finished ripe, I had no more inflammation markers. I had no more issues with my blood. I had um, nothing like this. And then I realized that rife was more of a killing machine and not a healing machine. I had a lot of issues with my liver, spleen, kidneys, organs after rife. Yeah. And I, I went into like a really, really deep dive into um, like naturally healing that. And I had a big journey after rife. Like, don't get me wrong. Rife was phenomenal. And I think a really key part of rife was my mindset was that yeah. I'm going to get better now. And like the path that it takes me is, is, is where it's going to lead. I met a really, really interesting nutritionist who's actually one of my wife's professors and her name is Jen and um, she put me on all these awesome protocols that she did with live blood analysis I don't know if you've heard of live blood analysis but basically they pick your finger and they put it under a microscope and they can see you know what the how the cells are interacting and acting and I had these really squishy cells that were like all compacted and you know um, a lot of speckles and a lot of those speckles were like you know um, not worms but they were like parasites so I had I went on this really big parasitic cleanse and then um, within that, I was doing stuff that also supports my body through nutrition. Um, and um, I was not one to think about nutrition before, you know, I hit my head, but I'd removed gluten and dairy when I hit my head. And then when I met Lauren, like I went like full into the clean living because she's a holistic nutritionist. And then. Well, let's um, hold off because I, I, I want to focus on the rife <laughs> a little bit more, because yeah. I think one of the things that you said I'm curious about, and I'm just wondering if you have any perspective, because when you said month three was all anger. Right. Yeah. And in my experience with my husband's illness, a lot of what I attribute his anger and rage was his infection with Bartonella, totally. you know, not Lyme. And so I was just curious as you were treating, it sounds like it was more broad spectrum approach and maybe you couldn't pick apart the different parts of your illness and your infection, or do you feel like you have any idea yeah. as you were targeting things about where some of your symptoms were coming from? Yeah, I think that, you know, I read a book, I was like very similar in nature to like reading when I could, because like my brain didn't work that well. But I think one year I read 52 books. Um, but I was, I read all the line books and very interesting thing that stuck with me was like my, my symptom that I feel at the moment is like my, my active co-infection. And I thought that that was a really cool way of looking at it because I feel like a lot of people, including myself, chase the symptom. And it's like, oh, I need a new, new treatment for this new symptom. Whereas your, your body could be completely the same just something is active in your system which wasn't active before you know co-infections go from dormant to active they switch out um and, and they, they kind of do their thing they do their little dance like that but I, I could I didn't worry about it once I started treating with Kyle I honestly didn't I you know I still thought of myself as um sick and not healing which was a big issue in my head um which is you know something that even my wife, Lauren, she broke her toe last week and, and she's like almost, um, she's, she's awesome. She's like almost fully healed now. It's like, because we, she took the mindset of like, my foot's broken. She was talking about that for a while now. She says, when somebody asks her, how's her foot doing? She goes, it's healing. It's like a simple mindset trick, but it's so detrimental in my head. And I can see that in my past that when somebody asked me how I'm doing, I'd be like, oh, I'm sick. I have this co-infection, I have this disease, this, mm -hmm. you know, I'm so sick. I can't do my life. Like, it's so sad. Like, um, and, and not like a poor me mentality, it's just in my mind. I thought that's what the people wanted to hear, yeah. but I already knew that I was battling with all that and, and, and not to lie and say that I'm well, or I'm healthy or I'm okay. But I just, I kind of switched it to say, I'm on a healing journey. I'm healing. I'm, and what I'm was, it. was there, was there a trigger for that? So you've got eight months, right? You said you're about 80% mm -hmm. better. Where in that, was it somewhere in that eight months? Was it after that eighth months? Was there a trigger that kind of made you change that mindset? 
Yeah, yeah, totally. I remember reading this book about a choice to be happy. And I went back on my childhood and I don't think that's something we touched on. I was such an angry kid. Um, I accomplished a lot when I was a kid, but I never celebrated. Um, I was always instilled in me to be humble, but I didn't understand what humility was. So I was angry. Like if I got an A plus on a report card or whatever, I got into the university I wanted, or I made the team that I wanted, or I scored 50 goals in a season. I was angry. I was like, this sucks. It doesn't feel good. I was always angry. And I read this book about the choice to be happy. And I was at, when I was at my sickest point, I think I was honestly in my third or four month of life. And I decided like, I'm just going to choose to be happy. I'm not going to force it. I'm just going to not dwell on that kind of like that kind of stuff. Um, I, I'm going to pick my battles. I'm not, I used to battle. I used to love to battle. Like when somebody was, um, you know, opposing my paradigm or my belief system, I used to love to battle. My dad was usually my target. And um, we used to get into these like ridiculous battles about nothing. And um, uh, I just felt like, you know, I got that adrenaline rush of, you know, being right. But when I'm right, again, I realized in an argument, if like nobody wins, if I'm right, I lose because I lost the other person's like happiness. If I'm wrong, I lose because I lost both of our happiness. So I, I, I thought about that and I read that whole book and I was like, I'm going to choose to be happy. So I started choosing things. One of my favorite things was clouds. Um, Lauren can attest to this, that I would look at the clouds every day and just be like, these things are incredible. Mm. Like clouds are insane. Like they, they change, they shift, they go in the wind and they make shapes that you can use your imagination and make them into whatever you want. And it all started with clouds. And then I read this other book and I listened to a podcast about finding hearts. I'm not sure if you heard about that, but it's basically the idea that our subconscious mind will find whatever we tell it to. So like if we're looking for ways for people to enforce our paradigms or like, let's say that, you know, we think that all doctors don't believe we're sick and we have that paradigm when we have Lyme and the next doctor we go to, we'll be saying things to get him to say that he doesn't think we're sick subconsciously. So the idea of finding hearts are to plant hearts in your subconscious and find them anywhere. So you'd find like a heart shaped rock or you'd find a heart shaped shadow or, you know, you'd find a heart shaped window and it just trains your subconscious that what you want to find or what you plant in your subconscious, you will find. So I started planting things like um, ways to heal and different modalities to heal. And I, I found things that were out of this world. I did one called mudding where they put like literal mud on your body where they think that you could use a, um, energy and, and force and just went with it. I'm like, this is yeah. cool. I'm open-minded. And I think that it helped, but. So in terms there. of, you know, getting that last 20%, right? What, mm -hmm. you know, you've talked about journaling, you've talked about mindset, you've talked about nutrition, uh, you know, what are some of the things that, or the tools or the, the techniques that you use that you kind of attribute to the big jumps or, or the big changes that kind of led you to where you are now? Yeah. So I, I love that question. And, you know, I think that 80% was my 100% at one time. So I never thought that I needed 20% more effort. And I think that you know, sometimes when we work towards that 100%, we can't really realize that we're at 80%, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I was lucky enough that 80% was my 100%. I was happy. I was, I was back. And don't get me wrong. Like I had years lumps, like two, two Januarys ago, I had a parasite and I kept on in my mind, like, is this Lyme? Is this Lyme? Got all the tests done. It wasn't Lyme. But in my mind, I thought it was Lyme. So I had the six month anger episode of, you know, being mad that I still not, and I didn't, it was just, you know, my subconscious. So there's these things that I had to work through, but um, in order to get the last 20%, it was a whole life change. Like comparing myself to my 16 year old self 
which I don't like to do, um, I don't pick those little battles anymore. And I find myself, um, I don't overexercise. I, I really built this plan for myself. And um, I, I really like to journal. So on every Sunday, I set out a full week of journal prompts for how I'm feeling in my head. And a lot of them right now revolve around happiness and success and like what that means to me. And I think that um, it's really important. So every morning, you know, I don't think this is important for people, but like for my morning routine, if, if it helps is I get up at 4.45, I do a 15 minute meditation where I actually do a visualization of what I want my day to look like. Um, you know, I do my, I brush my teeth, my, my cold shower or whatever, but then I come to my, my desk in my office and I journal. And every single week on Sunday, I set up my journal prompts for, for each day. And they kind of relate to like how I think the week's going to go. And they've been a lot about happiness and success, but I really just open up and I journal and they're about a full page. And then I send my wife an email every single morning about how I want the, want the day to go with my schedule. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's as much for her as it is for me that I'm setting an, in, um, an intention for how I want the day to go. Yeah. And um, I don't do, really do anything at night, except I have this thing called a habit tracker. Um, where I don't know if you'll probably be able to see that, but, um, it's, it's, it's kind of unimportant what the things are, but it's kind of how I want myself to grow. So every single, every single day, um, for the month, this is my April habit tracker. I have things like no alcohol cause it's dry April for me. I like to have, you know, I'm normal. I like to have a drink every now and then with friends, but I'm doing dry April. So I'm tracking if I'm doing no alcohol, I have no going out for meals. I've engaged in one hour of self-care and I have what self-care can be. I've engaged in one hour of fun and I have what fun can be to me. I like one, have at least one deep conversation with Lauren, reach out to at least one person with the same ambition as me. And then I have a lot of other things like read 20 pages of a growth book and, and all that. And just by me having to check those things off and, and grow into the person I want to become, I can see if I'm doing the things during the day that are going to get me there. And when I was sick, I still had this. It was just different. It was, am I doing my rife every day? Am I yeah. doing my gratitude journal every day? Am I, you know, like hugging my wife every day? Am I, and we got, we have our dogs. So of course I have to like kiss my dogs every day and, and deal with the consequences of that. But um, I, yeah. I found that the 20% just came and it was because I was open to things. I, I saw, I think I've seen more things in my life than I would ever, like I see intuitives. I go and I do like um, readings because my wife's, really spiritual I never was on this path and so I, I go and I see these intuitives and I do readings and um it's more of like a therapy for me and then I my mother-in-law is a huna healer so it's really similar to Reiki so she helps me out with 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 energy healing and um you know just all different things that I talked about I tried mudding I tried yeah. I try all this stuff but the main thing yeah is like ha- happy right like if yeah. you're on a if you're on a path to ha- like happiness isn't like I, I like to think of happiness as joy instead of like um, that euphoric feeling that people think that they'd be able to hide from drug from. Like, I'm not chasing euphoria. I'm chasing joy. And I had a really hard time last month because I'm really deep into my business and I'm, I'm opening a marketplace that is, is connecting clients and, and coaches, but it's been a really, really big month because I've been switching development firms. I've been having a lot of issues with my, with my lawyers and um, I've been doing a lot of things like hiring. I think I've hired eight people in the last month and um, I didn't have any time for me. So yeah. uh, my wife noticed that I was just like, I was down and it was affecting like everything. Um, so I recame to my habit tracker for April and I was like, everything in my April habit tracker is going to be for happiness. But happiness doesn't mean like euphoria. It means doing something that's going to take me to the person that I want to become. In yeah. The next I mean, I can't, I can't agree more. I mean, I think a lot of what you said on the journaling piece really echoes with me. And I, 
if for, for folks that if you're having a difficult time or, you know, trying to get through the rough part or also just to rebuild after it, writing things down and having that pensive moments. Um, mm -hmm. And I think when you get pushed to a really difficult place, you start exploring, you know, alternate modalities. I mean, I never meditated before all of yeah. the, the mess of being ill and now I do it daily and saunaing and exercise in the right way. It's, it's just can be truly transformative. Um, totally. I'm curious your journaling. Cause I, I know one of the, sure. my journal, um, it served as the basis for my book. Do you go back and read some of the times that you had in the past? And, and if so, like, what do you think about that person and, and how you've totally. grown? Yeah, I, I think so. My writing is like unlegible to like the naked eye. So <laughs> I typed because my handwriting's terrible <laughs> oh, that's, too. That's, that's good. I I love typing, so I type out like my emails to Lauren and stuff. But the, the writing ones, I just look at the the so so yes and no. So I set every single year. I set like um, a vision board and, and a journey, and it was so cool because um, when we moved to Florida, Lauren packed all of her stuff from her office, and and then the office was like my vision board from when I was really sick, and I accomplished every single thing on that vision board without remembering what was on that vision board. And just to see that by setting intention, I was able to do it is so cool. Cause if I hadn't set the intention and I did it, I wouldn't realize what I'd done. So going back to like 2019 to 2022, it's been like this wild journey for me. And, and I've seen it and like, even some stuff is like moved to Florida. It happened so organically, but I had it on my 2019 um, vision board. And I forgot about it. And um, it, it's just, yeah. it's just really cool. It's good to go back and it gives you that yeah. accountability and that record and kind of the story as you go forward. So in, in terms of, you know, what are the things that you learned that you really, you say, Hey, somebody knew you're in coaching, right? So yeah. what are the things that you a person comes to you and they say, I think I have Lyme disease and I, you know, I have some co-infections or whatever. What are the first few things that you would say to that person? Yeah, I like to check their paradigm. So I, I like to see what they're, they're already doing, um, you know, provide as much support as possible. But I know from my experience that, you know, if somebody's heading down a certain path that it's beyond me to, to tell them what to do in terms of treatment. So what I typically, I don't, I don't physically coach anybody anymore. Like my my um, kind of passions shifted but when I was coaching it was more about finding um, deep within them like a belief system in themselves and the treatments that they were doing to work so like understanding your treatments so like for example if you're doing antibiotic treatments like what are antibiotics like what's in them um, what do they do to your system and and how is that beneficial to you and or if you're doing like right like what is right what is frequency um, what is it doing to your system how is it beneficial to you how can you believe in that and like converting understanding into belief is huge. I think that although like we do the research to know like what antibiotics do to people, like a lot of people don't know antibiotics like a, like sometimes usually a form of mold. And a lot of like um, Lyme patients have mold toxicity. So um, for for taking antibiotics to get over Lyme, it might be you know counterintuitive. Um, so just understanding you know what's in them. But I think that the key the key takeaways that I have for my journey are. Um, one, you can't do it all yourself, let other people in because I, I really tried a lot to, to do it myself, to hide it, to not let other people in, but other, other ideas can spark intuition and, and just like maybe somebody, something somebody said a year ago and then something somebody says today can connect and it can put you in the right place. So let other people in was the number one. 
number two, just like be open to everything. Um, you know, you know, if things hurt can hurt you, obviously you don't need to try them, but like be open to the idea of every treatment. I've never closed off anything, like even antibiotic treatment, it never got closed off in my journey. It was just another option. And I, I had to find out what worked for me. So just being open and understanding. So my dad always used to say to me when I was a kid, make understanding your responsibility. And that's something that I take into my business too. Like I'm a non-tech um, tech CEO founder and I make understanding my responsibility. I understand how you know the platform should operate, how things are integrated. But the same thing with my, my healing journey. I wasn't a doctor, but I had to understand how um, the healing modalities worked, whether I'm taking an antidepressant, antibiotic, I'm doing rife treatment, I'm doing BVAM therapy, I'm doing um, infrared sauna, whatever it may be. Like, how does it work? Just something works in our brain. Like we have neural networks and neural networks and synapses. Like you'll fire and wire way more neural networks and synapses when you can understand something that leads to belief. Like, I think that understanding leads to belief 100%. And then the final thing is to have, <laughs> it's kind of counterintuitive, but have blind faith. Like it's easier said than done, but have faith in your, in your journey. Um, it's taking you somewhere that, you know, that you're, you're, you're going for a reason. Um, I, during my journey, I thought it was the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but my passion was pulled out of my journey. So there's a really good book called the obstacle is the way by Ryan holiday. Um, he talks about how, you know, that happens. It was made me so pissed off. when I read that book. I was like, screw you, Ryan holiday. You suck. Um, but now I'm like, Hey Ryan, like, can I be on one of your podcasts? I think your book's great. So, um, yeah, so the obstacle always ends up being the way, um, I didn't have a, a journey and, and it happened to be, so set your, set your intentions to, to be good and, and good things will happen. So Jordan, let's, let's re-examine that, uh, blind faith piece, because there does seem to be some inconsistency, at least with the terms that you're using, uh, between, um, you know, understanding leading to belief and then having blind faith, right? Because if we had blind faith in our doctors, then, or you had blind faith in your doctors, you certainly wouldn't have gotten to the place where you are today, right? So I think totally. we, have to, we have to be careful with our language and maybe we need to rephrase that last piece because it's really sort of being more being coachable, right? I mean, you were a good hockey player when you were coachable. And, yeah. uh, and you were not uh, going to be as good a hockey player if you weren't learning from your coaches by being coachable. So why don't we rephrase that last phase of your, of your, yeah, um, let me just put it framework. in a different, let me just put it in a different paradigm. Um, you know, we can take it to hockey. I played a lot of hockey with Connor McDavid and, and he believed he was the best that ever did it since he was nine years old and he made it to the NHL and he's the best that ever did it. I don't mean blind, have blind faith in your doctors. I mean, have blind faith in your journey. Um, so understand your entire you know, understanding everything that's going into your journey is really important. But if you don't believe you're going to heal, the understanding your journey doesn't matter. Um, so like if, if you don't, if you think that you're going to be sick forever and then you understand how antibiotics work and you take them and you don't get anywhere, um, I, I truly don't think that you, you will heal. I think that you have to have the blind faith in your journey. So like the, the journey is set. We're going to go on this journey and then understand everything that goes into that path. So um, like Rob Deirdrick, one of my like, favorite speakers, he used to be a skateboarder and I was a billionaire. Um, he talks about like uh, life planning or um, life design and setting, uh, starting with the end. So if you set your end destination and, and healing is, um, you know, I don't believe I'm gonna heal. It's really hard to change that end destination. But if you have that faith or that, that end destination as I'm healed or I'm going to heal or the pathways towards better and, and health and, and abundance or prosperity, whatever you want it to be, 
then everything in your path will be based off of that decision to get healthier. So you'll, you'll really understand like the, the decisions that go into, um, you know, choosing your doctors properly, because like, I want to get healthy. I'm not just choosing a doctor because I want to do treatment to, to do treatment. I'm choosing a doctor that wants to take me to my end goal of health, which is my belief and then, and building off of that. So that's, that's what I meant by blind. Don't have blind faith in your treatment, <laughs> have blind faith in your journey. Or, or having blind faith. How about we compromise? Um, how about we say, we'll, we'll compromise on having blind faith in yourself and in your capacity to grow in a way that will be necessary for you to find your purpose. And then when you find your purpose, you'll finally have been to the end yeah. of this portion of your journey. Yeah, that sounds great. Like I, I totally agree. Every single day of my life is planned out. Um, you know, nothing, I don't come into any day without a plan, but that plan came from something beyond that. And I agree. So like having, you know, I don't think it's blind if you can like, because you have to visualize it. So yeah, you're right. The word blind is wrong. Visualize your, yourself where you want to be and make your plan off of that. That's my, that's my last thing. Oh, but Jordan, I'm willing to accept blind. I'm, I'm willing <laughs> to accept the blind faith term. So long as it's you, you're, you're having blind faith in you, in you. Yeah. Right? And, 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 in, and in your capacity to grow in the way that you need to grow in order to be able to achieve the outcome that you set for yourself. So I'm good with blind faith, so long yeah. as we're, we're defining what we're being blindly faithful about. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, there's no, that was not my intention with that statement. So good clarification. So let's talk about what was beautiful about this journey, right? Because now we're, we're to a, now we're going to talk about the transformation. And you and Nicole had a really powerful conversation. I really enjoyed the, you know, the, the, the arc of the conversation. And you guys went through transformation. And the two of you talked a lot about the beauty of your journey. Let's, let's talk about it specifically now as beautiful, right? What portions of your journey were you finding to be beautiful? What portions of your journey would you never give back, regardless of the amount of pain you had to suffer when going through it? Um, yeah, all of it. I, I, I can't take it back. And, you know, I think that, you know, I, I it would be kind of selfish of me to take it back in a, in a sense that it shaped me to who I am today. A lot of, a lot of things that happened, um, I wouldn't have become this person. I might've, I might've had to have another lesson that brought me here, but I think that the whole journey was, um, something that I would never, never give up. And the pain, everything that, that it led to, it came out of, you know, some sort of tragic incident, but I'm, I'm very happy where I am. Well, but look, I, I think it's also an important life lesson that we all need to uh, grow from, right? That, you know, that happiness and sadness or pleasure and pain are really one, one path, right? It's not that we're diverting from our pleasure path when we're in pain or we're diverting from our, our, our happy path when we're sad, but that life is really about, about both of those, of those um, entities together at the same time. That's really what life is, right? And, and because you came to realize that and you brought those two things together, you finally got to a place where you're able to heal and then find your purpose, right? And the purpose yeah. that you initially discovered, which is now, which is now sort of developed into something else, were really the same, right? You, 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 you felt called to heal other people who were on the journey, but at a but at an earlier path in the journey. And you've now turned that into uh, what you're now developing. And let's build that out. Talk, talk to us in more detail about the new business that you've developed and what your goal is with this new business and how this 
was built out of or born out of this path of pleasure and pain that you're on um, that uh, resulted in you healing? Yeah, for, for sure. So the new business that I that I built is called Hatchpath, and and Hatchpath is like, born out. Slow, slow down again and pronounce it louder and more clearly. Sure, it's called Hatchpath. So you can think of it like hatching an egg, and then the path that you're on. So the the purpose of the name was it's birthing your new journey. So what I what I found through being on both sides of the coaching equation is that um, there's always somebody in our lives that you know is is where we want to be or who is our you know the person we're striving to be and they can give us the blueprint to get there and I felt like I was that for a lot of people on their Lyme journey and I was doing that person by person and you know trying to give as much advice as I could without overstepping and, and letting them have their own journey um, and then what I also found was it was really difficult to find clients as a coach but more importantly it was really 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 difficult to find the right coach as a client so when I was going through Lyme, I luckily stumbled upon somebody that was my neighbor who was able to talk to me and give me the blueprint to succeed and, and be there as my support system. And I look at her as more of a mentor. But then once I got farther into the process, um, there wasn't really anybody for me to relay my ideas off. I didn't know that coaches existed. I didn't know that mentors existed. So um, it, was, it was hard for me. And then I found a life coach named Mads, who's now my head of coaching for, for Hatchpath. But there was no linear system. And after talking to coaches, they do most of their discovery, about 95% on Instagram, Google, and word of mouth. And, you know, there's no direct system for them to, to get coaches. So, so what I've developed is a system for clients that allows them to post jobs. And those jobs can be anything that they're looking to get help with. So, for example, if I was a client for Lyme disease, I could post a job saying, hi, I'm Jordan. I struggle with chronic Lyme disease, and I'm looking for somebody to help me to get to the other side. Post a bunch of tags, Lyme disease, coach, whatever they may be on this platform. And now coaches have the ability with a program to apply to those, to those, um, to those jobs. So if on the other side, I'm a coach, you say, hi, I'm Jordan. I specialize in, in coaching people um, with chronic Lyme disease in their journey. I'm specialized in XYZ. Here's my program, which takes us through the 12 steps of XYZ and we can get started immediately. So what I'm doing is I'm becoming the conduit that allows people to find the people that get them to where they wanna be on their path. And the reason I did this was because I thought that I was only one person that could help, you know, so many people. But if I was able to connect people in the masses, then I could make a much more, uh, you know, much bigger impact. Similarly to this podcast, you, you, you're reaching, you know, 500,000 downloads now, which is incredible. Congratulations to that. Thank you. My goal was similar in that I want this to be, you know, widespread awareness and open up that, you know, that paradigm that, you know, we don't need to do it all ourselves, that we can have a coach that can guide us through the steps of the way. So tell us when this is going to be online and how folks could start to utilize this if they're coaches and how they can start to utilize this if they're uh, patients in the community looking for coaches. Yeah, so we're going live in the, in the beginning of June, so June 2022. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at hatchpath.io. Um, we'll have more information there, but you will be able to sign up for our waitlist as soon as uh, seven days from now. We're launching our landing page and waitlist in seven days. And with that waitlist, you'll get all the information about coaches that will be on the platform. And if you're a coach, you can still join the same waitlist and apply for our platform. So our, our application process is, is, is fairly easy, but rigorous. We're looking for you to have qualified certifications, um, past, you know, uh, past results, and then also to tell us where you, you were certified. Um, you know, our, our head of coaching, Mads, will then invite you to join an onboarding session, which we'll be hosting once a month. We'll take you to, through all the processes of the platform and, and you know, help you to get your first clients. 
So what is this going to cost uh, the patient um, who is looking for a coach through this platform? Well, to be a patient and a coach on this platform, it's completely free. So coaches can list their services and clients can come to the platform and search for coaches. And the only time that a, uh, a transaction is facilitated is during the actual purchase. So um, unlike subscription programs, there's no subscriptions. We take a transparent 10% take rate to fund the platform and, and we move on from there. So like if a coach is charging $100 per session for a client, we are taking $10 um, from that, that program. And, and is all the, are you also building a payment platform in as part of your platform so that folks who are purchasing the services from coaches will be able to just have one interface? Yeah, so that's the whole idea as well. We found that in our coaching, coaching interviews that, you know, people are using from eight to 13 softwares to do scheduling with Acuity or Calendly or, and payments with QuickBooks or whatever, hosting a website on Wix, Instagram communications and all that. So that's all built into our platform. So as soon as you sign up, you'll be able to post your jobs, communicate with coaches, pay the coaches, um, run your sessions within the platform. Um, and then for coaches, your back end is completely back, built into Hatchpath. You don't have to have an accounting software. We do that for you. And um, yeah, so it's all built in and no subscription. This is fantastic. We're, we're, really, we're really excited to hear about this, uh, Jordan. And, and we certainly want to uh, stay in touch with you so that when you, when you do finally launch this uh, product, uh, we, sh we should probably talk about having doing an Instagram live together or something like that so we can uh, we can work together and help you with the launch. Um, so now that we've um, now that we've uh, you know uh, learned all about the you know the beauty of this tool that you're developing, let's uh, let's um, help our folks in one other way. Last question we ask everybody on Tick Bootcamp is if God forbid something uh, were to happen, somebody that you loved, what would you do? For example, if God forbid that wonderful wife that you have, who's been so supportive of you and helped you to change your paradigms and your, and your mindset, God forbid she came into you after this podcast and she had a tick biting her on her arm. What would you recommend that you do so that she wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Yeah. And she, she did that a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. So, um, she came in with a tick, she was showering, um, you know, kind of similar episode to you because she know, she knew what happened to me. Um, but what we did was we were able to save that tick. So um, we were able to safely remove it and we shipped it off to, I will tell you the exact places. I forget it now. Um, they ran diagnostic testings on the tick to determine if it had Lyme disease um, um, and all the other co-infections we paid for the premium package. And our tick luckily did not. If your tick did have Lyme disease, I would you know, then recommend that you see your, your physician to do you know, standard testing. I do believe that Western blood is good for acute tests, like that, that meaning that the Lyme is directly into your system. And um, I'm not a physician, so I, don't, uh, I wouldn't have the steps for the next step of the acute phase. But I think that you know, there are a bunch of routes in the acute phase to, to get rid of it. Once it becomes chronic, is that, that's when you have the issues of, of um, the burden of the, the co-infections becoming riddled in your system and the Lyme spirit jets being you know, dug into tissues in your system. So, if you were just bit by a tick, send that tick to, to a diagnostic center and have it you know, tested for Lyme. All right, Jordan. And the beauty of having a guest co-host is uh, we end the podcast with a guest co-host asking their final question. So Nicole Bell is going to ask you the final question of the podcast. So I guess what I would want to know through your whole journey, right? You've, you started off, um, as an unhealthy kid, you've kind of figured out through this, you've got this new purpose and this new way to get to people. Um, what, in, in terms of your next steps, right? In, in helping people and getting things out there, what are the, 
the things that you do to focus yourself? You talked about journaling, you talked about all this, but like, what's the one thing that you say, this is what helps me get that, that purpose. It helps me get that mission so that I can make sure that I'm on the right path. Cause I think that's something that I deal with every day trying to recover is like, what's going to keep me in that North star to, to helping people and to getting to the right space. Totally. I, I love that question. And I do, you know, th three, six and 12 month planning um, where I set out my three, six and 12 month goals. And then every single Sunday I write my journal prompts and my to-do list for the week, which then evolve and change. Don't get me wrong, but having that plan in place is what sets out my week for purpose. So I wake up on Monday. I already have what I have to do that day listed. Although that changes almost every single Monday because of the emails that I get, it's nice to have in place. And then um, my journals put my head in the right space. My wife writes a nice little um, morning journal prompt on my whiteboard. And then I set off the day. So the number one thing that I do would be my Sundays, which is my planning day. I structure my, my week in accordance with my future goals. Great. Sounds like your wife's pretty awesome. Give her a high five for me. <laughs> yeah, she is. Yeah. And, and you two are really awesome. And I, I can't thank uh, you, Jordan, and you, Nicole, for taking time out of your lives, your very busy lives, and, and, and for creating this beautiful podcast for the folks uh, that are listeners to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. So thank you both. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Jordan Dunnan. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jordan, please visit his Instagram page at, at Jordan Dunnan or his business page, a website at hatchpath.io. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes for specific keywords, please visit tickbootcamp.com. You can also subscribe to our email list at tickbootcamp.com. If you'd like to share feedback with Tick Bootcamp, please use the contact form on our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.